Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. Uh, it's great that you're watching with us. This ministry has been prepared for August the 27th, 2023. As we begin, hear this sentence of scripture from Luke 12. Jesus said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Well, how true that is. I'm going to see how true that is today. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Uh, this is week number two. Uh, but as we begin, let's go to a time of praise. Well, as we come to the ministry of God's word, let me pray. Oh Lord God, you know that we can't put our trust in anything that we do. And so we ask that you would help us to have faith in you alone. 
And mercifully, Lord, defend us by your power against all adversity. Father, as we open your word now, help us to hear it. Please speak into our lives, we pray. Amen. Well, our Bible readings today begin with Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through to 12. Our psalm for today is Psalm number 2, verses 1 through to 12. And our Old Testament passage from Daniel that we're looking at is chapter 2. You might like to read the whole thing, or you can shorten it by reading just verses 1 through to 6, and then jumping through to 24 and reading through to the end. Uh, So pause the video, have a read of those passages, and we'll come back in a moment. Well, let's again commit our time to the Lord. Father of all, we pray that in this moment you would quieten our hearts, that you would give us a vision of your kingdom, and that you would help us to respond to you in the way that we need to, living lives of faithfulness before Almighty God. Amen. Well, I wonder what keeps you up at night. Now, I'm not talking about the loud music that comes from the middle of town on Saturday nights. I'm not talking about having a small bladder either, no, no. I'm talking about those nights where you just can't sleep because we're so consumed with what's going on in our lives. Sometimes we're kept up at night because we're thinking about and dreaming about this particular stage of life we're in. Perhaps we're dreaming about uh, where our career might take us. Or you're dreaming about what might come of that relationship. Or about the home that you want to build or the lifestyle that you want to fashion for yourself. Or perhaps it's dreaming about what you want to do with the rest of your retirement. I think those are some dreams that keep us up at night. But even more than that, often what keeps us up at night are the worries. We worry about what life holds for us. Perhaps you worry about your health. Or you worry about your family, your children. Maybe you worry about financial security. Or you worry about how you're going to possibly achieve all the dreams that you have for your life. Now, we worry that they won't come true, and we especially worry when our dreams are threatened. And the things that keep us up at night, they can also determine the kind of people that we are during the day. And that's exactly the case for Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter 2. Because this king had a dream. And I'm not talking about the vivid dream that we see here in the chapter. No, no. But long before that played on his mind, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream for his kingdom. His dream was to fully establish Babylon as the superpower of the world and the greatest kingdom there ever was. But as we start reading, verse 1 tells us this is just the second year of his reign as king. And so his life, his reign, it's all ahead of him. But things are starting off pretty well so far, right? Capture Jerusalem, bring back people. It's going well. But in chapter 2, we find that King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream at night that interrupts his dream for his kingdom and his life. That's a little bit ironic, right? This is the guy who has everything you could possibly want. Anything that money can buy, anything that an army can capture, but it can't give him sleep at night. And such is the reality if we are only ever dreaming about our kingdoms. But Daniel chapter 2 today challenges us instead to be captured by a vision of God's kingdom. Now that's our first point. So Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream of his kingdom, a dream for his kingdom rather. 
He wanted to make the already great Babylon even greater. And yet verse 1, we find that he has this continuing dream at night that interrupts his sleep. We're told at the end of verse 1 that his mind was troubled. Now, though he doesn't, he doesn't believe in or pay much attention or any attention to the God of Daniel, the God of the Bible, don't for a moment think that Nebuchadnezzar isn't a religious guy. Now, his, his nation has many gods. He himself is named after one of those gods. In fact, he's named after the God of wisdom. And yet, ironically here, he's in absolute darkness as to what's going on. Now, in the worldview of the Babylonians and other nations, our dreams generally were considered as a communication from the gods, from heaven, to people. And so Nebuchadnezzar would have believed that the dream he had was God, uh, the god's way of reaching out to him. And that's why his dream would have troubled him so much. Because if you jump down with me at verse 31, we're told what this dream is. Daniel tells him later, verse 31, it's a dream about an enormous statue. Verse 32, it has a head of gold. Its chest and arms are made of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Verse 33, its legs and, and feet, they're made of iron and partly clay as well. And for Nebuchadnezzar, as he watched on in his dream, verse 34, a rock comes, it strikes the statue on its feet, and the whole thing is broken to pieces. And I'd be willing to bet your house on the fact that Nebuchadnezzar thought this was going to happen to him. Right? It's no wonder that he can't sleep. But since uh, a divine meaning behind dreams is part of their worldview, he has a team of people ready for such an occasion. And we meet them in verse 2. It says, So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers. Right? These professionals had uh, dream interpretation on their list of responsibilities. And they had all sorts of books of wisdom and, uh, and understanding and symbolic interpretation to help them interpret what dreams meant. That's kind of like reading tea leaves, but on a much bigger scale, right? But unlike what they're used to, uh, the king makes an impossible demand. Before they can even interpret the dream, they need to tell him what the dream is. And if they can't, they're going to die. Now, some people suggest that the reason the king makes such a crazy demand is because he himself forgot the dream. But I don't think that does justice uh, to the king's anger or the urgency of the situation. I think far more likely is that it's because of what's at stake. He wants to be assured of himself about the authenticity of any interpretation. Right? This is his life at stake. Now, no surprise though, for these wise men... They can't do what the king has asked. And so they tell the king what even we know is true. Verse 10, they say, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. Verse 11, No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they continue on, And they do not live amongst humans. I actually disagree with them on this last point. But I assume that in telling the king this, they hope the king will go, Ah, oh, silly me, of course you can't. And he'll take it easy on them. But what does he do? No, no. He absolutely flips out, completely loses his nut, and orders that all the wise people in Babylon now are to be put to death. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream for his own kingdom. And when that came under threat, not only could he not sleep at night, but it became totally unbearable to deal with during the day. 
And I want to suggest that he's actually a bit of an illustration of what we too are like when we, we become fixated simply on our own dreams. As long as we're trying to build our kingdom, we're not going to be satisfied. The more we focus on ourselves and achieving everything we can in life, the more that we have to worry about. Now, I was reading a bit of Unmissable Church uh, earlier in the week, one night. Uh, it's the book we're promoting at the moment. If you haven't read it, haven't got a copy, get your hands on it. It's good stuff. But in the book, Unmissable Church, uh, the authors remind us of some comments by a guy named Charles Taylor, who says, who says that since the mid-1900s, we, we've lived in what he calls the age of authenticity. Right? It's where the self, the individual, is king. Now, funnily enough, the Bible has another word for that kind of living. That word is sin. And at the heart of sin is where we make ourselves our king, where we dream only about our lives, where everything else takes a backseat, including God. Even if God is somewhere there, he's taken the backseat. And that's the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, well, that's what plagues our heart as well. And as we'll come to see as we keep reading, regardless of any kind of frustration and brokenness that are simply a part of living that way of life, on the grand stage of history under God, it won't end well for us if we are only dreaming about our own kingdom. That's point one. But as we come to verse 14 now, I want to show you how that life is contrasted with someone who has true wisdom and is captured not by a vision of self, but by a vision of God's kingdom. And that person is Daniel. We meet him again in these verses. Uh, we, we met him last week in the story. Uh, Daniel is a guy who, with his friends, were captured in Jerusalem and brought into exile in Babylon. Now, last week we saw they were put through a three-year discipleship program where they were made to basically assimilate as one of the Babylonians, taking on their life and their thinking. But for Daniel, he drew a line in the sand, you might remember, and chose not to compromise on his faithfulness to God. Now, Daniel knew his, who his God was. And I want you to see how similarly here, a Daniel is again someone who displays the marks of a person who's captured by a vision of God's kingdom. Not the Babylonian kingdom, not his own kingdom. He's captured by a vision of God's kingdom. And I want to highlight three things that are worth noting here. Number one, as a man captured by a vision for the kingdom of God, Daniel shows courage in the face of death. In verse 13 here, we find that Daniel and his friends, they're, they're grouped with these wise men of Babylon who are going to be put to death as, as the order of the king. They too have their heads on the chopping block. But you notice that doesn't stop him from confronting the executioner and the king himself. Right? Not only to try and ask them to explain the matter, but to ask for more time, doing the very thing that in verse 8 we're told was the reason that got the wise men into trouble in the first place. How could Daniel have courage like that in the face of death? Well, the answer is simple. Because he knows the one who is really in charge and turning the wheel of history. He knows that, yes, Nebuchadnezzar is a powerful king. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar could put him to death quite easily. But above that, he knows that nothing can happen outside of God's sovereign plan and will. And that even if he does die, God is, no, is, is in control no less. 
because he works out all things for the good of those who love him. Daniel knows that. And perhaps for us, it's worth pausing to ask the question if we have that same kind of courage for ourselves in the face of death. Either trying to deal with the reality of our own or for someone else that's dear to us. But like Daniel, we can have courage in the face of death when we are captured by a vision of God's kingdom because we know the one who is seated in heaven. Now, second thing here. As a man captured by a vision for the kingdom of God, Daniel turns to true wisdom in the face of uncertainty. Right, turns to true wisdom in the face of uncertainty. You see, when faced with a problem in life, when faced with an impossible task, Daniel doesn't turn to the wisdom of the world like, like the, the Babylonian wise men do. No, no, he turns to where the greatest source of wisdom can be found. Have a look at verse 17. And Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 18, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, in the first half of this chapter, uh, there's a bit of a comparison going on, perhaps uh, a battle, if you like, between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And I hope you can see that when it comes to the big questions of life, like in this story, the so-called wisdom of the world, it is truly powerless to give any real answers and any comfort. I was speaking to a man only this week who felt totally powerless knowing how to help his kids deal with the reality of death. Because without knowing the God of the Bible, the God who sent his son into the world to take away the sting of death, there's no satisfactory answer. And perhaps you've got friends or family who feel that tension right now. How do we make sense of death in the world apart from this God? Well, if we are captured by a vision for the kingdom of God, then like Daniel, we'll know that in everyday life, but especially in facing uncertain times, we can turn to a God who isn't distant like the Babylonians think he is. No, but a God who speaks into our world and a God in whom we find true wisdom. And we know that as we read his word, don't we? Now, the third thing here is that a man captured by a vision of God's kingdom, as that, Daniel has humility despite his success. I want you to notice how, uh, how he compares to Arioch, right, the king's executioner. Daniel goes to him in verse 24 and says, I can tell the king his dream. And so verse 25, Arioch says to the king, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And we read that and we go, no, you didn't, you liar, right? He found you. And in contrast to that, verse 28 to 30, twice Daniel gives glory back to God rather than taking it for himself. Right? Ariok tries to build up his own name. And Daniel could have done the same thing. He could have made himself look good in this moment. He could have built up his own name. He could have started building on his own kingdom, if you like. But I suspect, as we're about to see, that Daniel doesn't because he knows that there is only one kingdom that really matters. There is only one kingdom that really lasts. Now, before we move on, uh, we've been highlighting uh, Daniel's character here, his godly character. But at another time, uh, after this perhaps, I want, to, I want to encourage you to go and read Daniel's prayer of praise in verses 21 to 23. And I want you to reflect on not just Daniel's character, but God's character. 
because this prayer of praise, it highlights the major themes of both this chapter, but also the whole book of Daniel. Have a look at that and see if you can see them come out. Now, we've already had a look at what the dream contained, the vision that Daniel reveals to him. But let's now turn to the interpretation that Daniel gives him of the dream. Remember, there's a statue. It's made of gold on the head, of silver here, of bronze, and then iron and clay as we go down. And in the end, the rock comes and smashes it to pieces. And this is what Daniel tells the king as the interpretation. He starts in verse 36 and he says to the king, the God of heaven has made you a great ruler. And he says, you are the head of gold. You're the head of gold. And then he says to him that each other part is a different kingdom as we go down. And each part progressively gets uh, more and more, uh, well, inferior to what come, to the one that came before it. Until eventually God's kingdom comes and smashes them all to pieces. Now, what we could do at this point is to stop and we could try and map out what these four kingdoms look like. We can map, onto them, map them onto earthly kingdoms. Now, for example, many Bible commentators will point out that if Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Babylon, if that is the head of gold, then the kingdom after that, the, the silver, must be the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And then after that will be the Greeks. And then after that would be the Romans. They must be the iron mixed with clay. And if that's right, then we would expect that God would send his rock to set up his kingdom at some point during the rule of the Romans. And so sure enough, 600 years later, we find the man named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, turning up on the scene of history when the Romans are in power. And he says in the start of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, because of all of that, it seems like a pretty good fit, right? But those details are actually given us in the story. And I want to suggest the chief purpose in God preserving this story for us is not so that we would try and map it out, even if there are ways that we can do it and it kind of makes sense. But rather, there's something more general and yet far, of far greater significance that God is saying to us through this story, through this dream even. Above anything else, this is telling us that God is the one who establishes and removes kingdoms and only his kingdom will last forever. Now, from this dream, we learn that human kingdoms, they're appointed by God. That doesn't mean, though, that God approves of all human kingdoms, but he is still sovereign over them. And not only that, but we also learn that all human kingdoms, they'll come and they'll go, right? They won't last and that includes any dreams that we have for our lives as well. Where we want to set ourselves up as a center of our own little kingdom, they won't last. They're doomed to, doomed to fall. But look at what Daniel says about the rock. The rock that comes at the end and breaks the statue to pieces and becomes a mountain that fills up the earth. In verse 44 he says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Well, so what's this telling us about God? Well, the easy thing to see here is that, and the thing that most people focus on, is that God is sovereign, is that God is a God of judgment. 
And the temptation is to only focus on that aspect. That God will one day come in judgment to smash and remove every earthly kingdom. And while that's not wrong, uh, we can easily make the jump from Daniel chapter 2 to the second coming of Jesus, uh, where all kingdoms will dissolve away before him. Now, again, that's not wrong, but it's not the complete picture. Now, because in Luke's gospel, in chapter 20, uh, Jesus refers to the stone in Daniel 2 here, and he links it to himself, and he also links it to a, a psalm there as well. He calls himself the stone the builders have rejected, which has become the capstone. And he makes it clear that this is in connection with his own impending death and resurrection. It's pointing forward to that. That's the context of Luke 20. In other words, Jesus is using, Jesus is appealing to Daniel 2 to indicate that the arrival of God's kingdom comes firstly at the moment of his death and resurrection. And if we're to think about the way that Jesus speaks about his kingdom when his earthly ministry in the Gospels, does he speak about his kingdom in terms of judgment primarily or salvation? But you know, it's salvation, isn't it? And for us, it's right to see the vision of Daniel 2 both as a message of God's sovereignty in his judgment, but also something that points to his salvation. Salvation that comes only by attaching ourselves to the rock that God has sent, to the king of God's kingdom. Right? Only by standing with Jesus, who did go to the cross to open up the way of salvation to all people who stand with him by faith. Right? He is the rock that grows into the mountain, that will eventually fill the whole earth. The kingdom that starts small, but grows to one day be established over all the others as they lay in the dust. And so, as I said before, the big idea, to ta the takeaway here, is that God is the one who establishes and removes kingdoms. And only his kingdom, the one that he sets up through his son Jesus, only that kingdom will last forever. Now, the right response to this message, the right response to this dream, is to stand on the rock. Is to be captured by a vision, not of your own kingdom, but of God's kingdom. In verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar, well, he responds in a way that seems pretty good for a polytheist, but it's far from a conversion. Right? In response, his, his response isn't actually giving his life in faith to the one true God and Lord of all who can save. Right? He's not here captured by a vision of God's kingdom. He's still thinking about his own. And I'd wager that he feels a real sense of relief hearing the interpretation of this dream, Simply because he's not the he's only the head, rather. He's not the whole thing that's about to come crumbling down. But what about you? How do you respond to hearing this? Are you captured by the vision of God's kingdom where Jesus is the king? Or are you still primarily focused on building your own kingdom? On building your own life? Your own reputation? Have you heard the challenge today? That every other kingdom, apart from God's, will crumble. Those dreams you have for yourself, for your life, for your career, for your, your retirement, whatever it is. There will be a day when they are no more. But Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom is the only one that will endure. The only one that will have any, be able to give any kind of lasting satisfaction. So has your heart been captured by a vision of his kingdom. Now, if you've got the outline that 
went out in the email, you'll see that there's one more point there, but we haven't really got time to, to go down deep down into it. But I do just want to say that our world, it's not set up in the way that the wise men of Babylon thought it was. Uh, they think that God or the gods, they're distant, they're far off, they're not involved in our world. But Daniel is helpful for us in reminding us that that's just not the case when it comes to the one true God, the God of the Bible. Because in the man Jesus, our God has come near. He has come into our world. Right? Jesus is God's perfect self-revelation to us. The one who left his home to establish his kingdom here on earth, triumphing over every other kingdom, every other self-inclined heart by dying on the cross. A God's kingdom isn't a geographical or a political kingdom, but it's a spiritual one that pulls people out of allegiance to self, out of sin, and it pushes them onto Christ. Now, you may be wondering at this point, how can I cultivate a heart that's captured by a vision of God's kingdom. I mean, my heart continuously drags me away, calling me to be, to be focused on things that, things that I can have, a dream that I might have for myself, wishes I have for my life. Well, the only one true antidote for this is to focus on the rock, the one who came to establish his kingdom here on earth by establishing it by dying in our place and rising again. And the one who will one day bring about the completion of that kingdom as every other is wiped away. If you want to have a heart that's captured by a vision of God's kingdom, focus on the rock. Because as once you see that Jesus gave up his kingdom for you, you'll be far more able to give up your kingdom for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great King of kings and revealer of mysteries. And we give you thanks and praise that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son and through the pages of Scripture. Father, help us to take comfort in that, that you are not distant, that you are, you are near to us. Father, we can turn to you for wisdom, that we can turn to you for salvation. Lord, please forgive us for when we try and set up our own kingdom where we have hearts that are, that are self-focused. Please forgive us of those times, those attitudes, those actions, and help us to be captured by a vision of your kingdom. Help us to live lives that glorify and honour you as Lord of all. Father, let that be the song of our lives, we pray. Amen. Well, let's go now to another time of praise.
Well, we come now to a time of prayer. And so in a moment, I'll invite you to pause the video and there's plenty of things to be, to be praying for. One of which might be you praying for yourself, asking God to help him give you eyes for his kingdom that you'll be less focused on your own dreams and desires and have a greater heart for what he is doing in the world. And maybe it's confession of the times when that hasn't been the case. Uh, there are plenty of things to be praying for in our church, in our community, in our own lives. And so let's go to a time of prayer and we'll follow that with one final time of praise. He's the living one, the first and the last. 
Well, let me encourage you with those first words of Jesus that we see in Mark's Gospel. Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, that's how we're called to respond to God's kingdom. Or well, may that be true in your life. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.